Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Beats of the Market podcast. I'm your host, Ed Martin, where we discuss everything from wild conspiracy theories to investment markets to risk, policy, everything, you name it, we're going to get into it. I'm super excited. Let's just dig right into this. Saturday, May 28th, Memorial Day weekend, a huge weekend for Americans to get out and fire up the barbecue, throw some steaks and burgers on the grill, turn off the news, turn off your phone, spend some quality time with the family. To me, that's what it's all about. So hopefully the propane and meat prices didn't wreck everyone too much. My God, there are so many similarities to the 70s here uh, with uh, record crime, high gas prices, A conflict in the East that's driving supply shock. We saw that in recent news with the shortage of baby formula where one of the critical ingredients to deprive fats from is sunflower oil. That being affected by Ukraine, which was the world's largest exporter prior to the war. Before we get too much in the weeds, I just want to say thank you to all the listeners who were here with us last week. Your support really means a lot, so thank you. All right, so this week we saw SPY bounce 6%. We saw Triple Q, the tech stocks, bounce about 7%. We saw the 10-year yield kind of relieve some tension there. We fell from 3.2 to around 2.75. So you are seeing a temporary narrowing of bond yields. And that's um, you know leading a, a backdrop for recovery. Now, with that being said, I am not in the camp that believes this is a true recovery. I think this is a dead cat bounce. I was surprised to see that people were willing to make bids on these risk assets and hold them over the long weekend. So that's general equities there when we're looking at gasoline. And I'm going to talk gasoline, oil, because I think that's really important right now. So the RBOB gas futures for June 22. That stands for reformulated blend stock for oxygenate blending. Um, That makes up about 30% of the U.S. market for gasoline because 30% of it has to requires reformulation. Those jumped up 3.5% or 13 cents per contract. So you're just seeing the RBOP gas futures go higher and higher. And that, that, that doesn't give me the warm and fuzzies for the market just personally, because it's a sign that energy is getting more and more expensive as we start realizing the tightness of the supply in the market. So Wednesday data came out from the energy, the US Energy Information Administration. They expected a draw that was lower than what we saw, but it was actually much larger. So This time when normally we would be building oil and gas inventories, we're actually drawing from them more than we expected. That should be typically bullish for for, uh, oil, the fundamental for for oil prices. So if I had to bet, I would say gas prices are going higher from here. We already have $6 gas in California, and the draws will probably skew higher than what the government is saying. Also, the Biden administration may be rethinking its energy policy after Bloomberg reported that they've actually asked some of the old refineries that have shut down to reopen to increase domestic supply. So that's just another sign that there's tightness in those markets. 
If you don't believe me that oil is underinvested or undercapitalized, at least through the last cycle, you can look at XLE, which is the Spider Weighted Energy ETF. Its average market cap is $177 billion per energy company, ExxonMobil being $405 billion. That makes up 23% of the fund. Chevron is $344 billion. That makes up 21% of the fund. So 44% of that fund, a little less than half of it, is only $750 billion in market cap. That's not even a third the market cap of Apple, which to me just makes absolutely no sense at all. So you have Apple, which makes up, you know, six, roughly five and a half, six percent of the the S&P 500. And then you've got energy, which is just like, you know, three or four percent, it just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. And that's, of course, excluding Saudi Aramco, which is now the largest company in the world. Another headline that caught my attention is that France has become the first country to ban any new oil exploration licenses immediately and any oil extra- extraction by 2040. Uh, and to that, I would say good luck and have fun staying cold. Now, this is all going on while the U.S. Gulf crude exports climbed to nearly an all-time high with Europe uh, to 50 million barrels um, in December of last year. That was just 20 million. So the amount of oil that's being exported from the U.S. to Europe is twice as high. And these guys are like, nope, we don't, you know, don't worry about that. We're just going to shut it all down. And how this all ties in, and this is the last thing I'll I'll speak to in the energy sector, is that the U.S. Big Four, that's the Strategic Petroleum Reserves, the SPRs, plus gasoline, plus distillate, plus jet fuel, it's all declining over the spring building months when normally you would be building your your storage uh, and your reserves to prepare for peak summer months. And so I think that's something worth keeping an eye on. Let's talk housing here, a sector that has been absolutely mental for longer than anyone probably would have thought. We saw April building permits fall 3.2%. For single family permits, they dropped 4.6%. And housing starts slipped 0.2%. So you're starting to see some signs of cooling in the housing sector. Let's just crunch some numbers real quick to give you an idea of how wild the home prices and mortgage prices are. So in 2019, a home that listed for $300,000 with a 4.3% 30-year fixed mortgage had a monthly payment of $1,192. In 2022, that home was $438,000. That was a 5% increase from 2020, a 15% increase in 2021, and a 20% increase in 2022. That would leave you with a 5.5% 30-year fixed mortgage payment of 1991 So not only is the home more expensive, considerably more expensive, so is the mortgage payment. So something has to break here. Maybe the home market doesn't break because supply shortages and tightness and so on, but I think the U.S. government is absolutely looking at this because there's so much wealth tied up in housing. And I think a lot of these homes were investors and and people who already owned homes and went out and just 
took advantage of the, these low rate mortgages. So just to speak to that point, overall U.S. apartment rent changes from 2020 to 2022, as April of 2020 to 2022, this year of April, it's an increase of 21% overall apartment. And for a two bedroom, the rent went up 24%. So that you're starting to see rent really take off here. And, and, and that's a problem for the 45% of Americans that spend 40% of their income on housing. And that's a 2019 study. I can only imagine what those numbers are now. So how does that relate to policy? Well, if you go to the whitehouse.gov website, there's a, I believe it was May 16th or May 10th, there was a new initiative that came out and the Biden administration basically said they're going to expand and improve existing loan forms. I thought this was interesting of federal financing by exploring, and I quote, exploring the feasibility of, of Fannie Mae purchasing the loans while promoting the use of state, local, tribal, and government recovery funds to expand affordable housing. So essentially what they're doing is they're watering down credit. They're going to you know, basically have Fannie Mae or some of these loan institutions just say, hey, housing is completely unaffordable. We have a you know, 1.5 million homes short the market. Water that credit so people can have affordable housing. To me, that that's going to actually make things considerably worse. You're essentially underwriting the the credit market, um, which is just going to create more and more inflation. So we know that the consumer, particularly the the lower income uh, consumer up to maybe lower middle class, is really starting to hurt to the point where the government is willing to get involved and help them. There was two reports that came out to speak to this too, and they were alarming and caught my attention. And I think people should be following this. It was uh, from CNBC. They reported that U.S. credit card debt has now hit an all-time high of $930 billion, uh, up from the 2008 peak of $870 billion. Delinquencies increased 0.16, that's 16 basis points from the prior quarter, to 5.3% overall. And Americans between 18 to 29 have 76% higher delinquencies than any other age group. That puts their total delinquency at 9.36%. So really, 1 in 10 Americans with consumer credit card debt between 18 and 29 are, are in delinquency. That's a, that's a serious problem. So the second report that, that plays into this that's critical is the U.S. savings rate. So during the pandemic, when $3.6 trillion was handed out through different stimulus programs, the saving rate soared to an all-time high of 30%. But at the same time, following that, income remained flat, roughly flat, and consumers spent 6% more. That was the largest rise since 1982. And now the savings rate has dropped to 6.4%, which is the lowest since 2013. So you have credit card debt going up to all-time high levels of 2008. You've got the savings rate dropped to the lowest level since 2013. And you're starting to see, in my opinion, the beginning of a price wage spiral. When I took economics classes, the phenomenon of wages moving in relation to prices was called a, if it spiraled, it was called a wage price spiral. So the idea was that as you make more money, you're hunting more goods, you have more purchasing power, so the price of everything rises. When you have a tight labor market at the same time, 
the wages have to keep going up because labor gets so competitive and that's where the spot that's where it can spiral but i would actually argue that what we've seen is the reverse we've seen prices go up and wages are now starting to go up and the data is coming out i was looking at the atlanta federal reserve hourly wage data and it, it looks like a hockey stick it, it's nothing i've seen in the past 20 or 30 years i didn't have the data back to the 70s i would imagine it would look very similar so the data from the reserve bank of atlanta says the medium three-month average of medium wage growth for hourly workers moved from three to six percent and it's just steadily increasing for this next segment i want to talk about apple apple's a 2.3 trillion dollar company it makes up 5.8 percent of the s p 500 and we're going to focus on a report that came out from april of 2022 from ubs apple relies on about 20 different companies in asia to help with manufacturing and supply chains everything from ems that's electronic manufacturing services ODM, original equipment manufacturing, foundry, OSAT, display, metal casings, and so on. Now, Pegatron, which is one of the companies that deals with EMS and ODM manufacturing, doesn't have 51% of their supply. Compal, another company, is reporting 40% less. Quanta, 38%. The only one... Out of all of these companies, only two of them produce more stock for supply. That was Taiwan Semiconductors and another small company that was like a 4% increase. Now, for display, TPK Holdings reported 37% reduction in stock. AU Optronics, 21% drop. Catcher Tech deals with the metal casing, 100% drop. And Foxconn, probably the most well known. 37% lower supply. Now combine this with the fact that over the past 12 months, there's been 6.84 million shares sold by insiders, including the CFO, Luca Maestri, who sold 60% of his shares back in May of last year. And there have been zero insider purchases. Not a single person in Apple, at least reported on the SEC Form 4, has purchased shares. Now that that's important because Apple is a huge component, you know, probably the largest component of most index funds. So I would be very curious to see when we get to earnings in July what type of bombshell we're going to see on this report. Now remember we had some of these internet darlings and Netflix and Microsoft and Nvidia. A lot of this stuff is down 30, 40, some of it even more percent in just a few months but apple has been relatively resilient here it's still trading in i think 24 23 times forward earnings expected 12 to 15 percent forward growth but how how is that going to play out if they can't get any of these things so at a 2.3 trillion dollar valuation i wouldn't be surprised to see a 20 or 30 percent drop and that's going to be a serious amount of money that that exits the funds. So just something to think about. I'm kind of looking at that. I found it fascinating. I think the market is sleeping on it. If you want to understand supply chains, you should probably follow Craig Fuller. 
the CEO of FreightWave, which is a website that tracks logistics, everything from shipping to trucking and so on. I can't remember if it was from him directly or, or somebody else, but they had created a uh, chart of trucking tonnage in the U.S., you know, total, total volume. And they, they kind of put it next to the S&P 500. And that was really, really interesting because what you'll find is that trucking peaked at the 3,100 level on the S&P 500. And it actually fell because of congestion and, and problems and fuel prices and so on to 2,700, uh, while the S&P at the same time went to 4,700. So if we adjust the total tonnage from trucking in the U.S., and this is reported from the American Trucking Association, by the way, uh, that gets you to a SPY at 2,900, a significant level lower from here. Now, that's not a call that SPY is going to 2,900. It's just a piece of information that can help build a roadmap and assist in valuation. I think it was Stanley Druckenmiller, who I'm a big fan of, said, if you want to understand the economy, look inside the stock market. For me, what that means is looking at different industries, looking at different sectors, looking at the forward guidance for earnings and sales, looking at free cash flows, looking at the balance sheet income statement, looking at the product or service pipeline, seeing what kind of margin compression they're experiencing. Do they have pricing power? Are they over leveraged? What does the debt look like? Are they paying a dividend? Are they buying back shares and so on? And what happens when you do that is you start to get a really good understanding of the macro environment. When you get the macros right, you can start focusing more on the micros. So if you know that the consumer was strong, they were going to be buying all these goods on excess savings, whether it was temporary or not, uh, then those goods probably had to come over on container ships. Companies in the shipping industry just went completely parabolic. You know, the, the demand for those ships, it pushed rates from 2000 to 20000 for an L.A. container ship. As we go forward, looking at the numbers, we, know, we now know that that's a bit of a headwind, and we are not expecting the consumer to be buying as much goods. If anything, the economy may be shifting back towards the service-based economy as opposed to the goods, just due to the you know, resource scarcity that we're seeing. I think the more important question here, just in regards to the macro and the health of the economy, is how quickly did they get this inflation down? How transitory is it, if we can even say that word anymore? I'm almost tired of hearing it. How healthy is the consumer? Because they certainly don't look healthy to me. And then these forward earnings estimates, they all look horrendously wrong. The earnings is the bottom part of a PE ratio, price over the top, earnings on the bottom. Then they're completely wrong and people are just overpaying drastically for these companies. And I think that's what we've seen in this move from 4,800, of course, ridiculous, down to 4,000 on SPY. Could it be bounced to 4,500? Absolutely. It wouldn't surprise me. But are people going to be borrowing money to make trades? Are we going to continue to see people saying, hey, I want SPY at 4,500 as we go into a stagflationary environment? Just doesn't really make sense to me. Another important piece here is that you're going to start seeing food protectionism. So as these shortages play out, it has huge ripple effects.
seeing India blocking food exports. The latest from Sugar, where commodity better, you know, commodity traders are are setting up their beds to understand how countries are going to position themselves, and so you can only help a shortage in another country if your country is not hurting too. So this is something I would really be paying attention to. It's a very important macro theme, and it has implications on our lives directly. The other side of that is if countries are curbing exports, then the local producers or domestic or publicly traded food companies could benefit massively from that because if they don't have export curbs and they can continue selling, then that, that to me, that would be a tailwind. So when we draw on all of these themes that, that we just spoke about, we have a tight oil market, we have a housing slowdown, we have food protectionism, which is resulting in more shortages, as we saw with the baby formula news a few weeks or months ago. We have a consumer that's over-levered, and we have a balance sheet that for the federal government continues to expand and looks like it's going to expand even more if they're watering down credit. In addition to this, we have the bonds which were purchased from the federal government through TARP and the different stimulus programs, you know, 08, 09 financial crisis that come in, they bail everybody out, that goes on the balance sheet. And now, you know, so they say in June, they're going to try and roll off these uh these assets. And so I would say, good luck with that. I was talking with a friend of mine just a few days ago, and, and we were talking about this band called Every Time I Die. They're a hardcore punk band from Buffalo, New York. And there's this song called It Remembers. There's a lyric in there. I thought I settled my debts that night on the ride home, but I still have hell to pay. Those things in the past still have to be paid. And we haven't gotten there yet. For newer and lesser known stuff, I'm listening to Long Distance Calling. They've also kind of been around there for a while, but they don't have such a huge fan base outside of Germany. It's a German band. A friend of mine in Hamburg is actually working with them, so shout out to Heinrich. For older stuff, I'm listening to Glass Animals. Somebody said that band sounds like what a lava lamp would sound like if it could sing. I totally agree with that. In terms of music production, I'm not really focusing on one set genre, just tossing around different ideas. You probably noticed that this episode wasn't quite as musical as the last ones. I wanted to focus more on some of these things that are happening in front of us that are really, really important. It's just history in the making. It's a very delicate situation right now. That's it from me. Hope you have a fantastic weekend and get to spend some quality time with your family. Catch you next time. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.